HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by PASA Sustainable Agriculture. Learn more about PASA's 2021 virtual conference at pasafarming.org slash conference. Good evening, and welcome to the 175th episode of Eating Matters. I'm your host, Jenna Liute, and we're broadcasting on Heritage Radio Network. I can think of no better way to celebrate the 175th episode of a podcast like Eating Matters than by speaking with Tom Philpot, a leading food politics journalist and former farmer, about his newly released book, Perilous Bounty, The Looming Collapse of American Farming and How We Can Prevent It. The book takes us on an unsettling journey into who, how, what, and where we produce food in this country, and it explores possible solutions that could route us away from disaster as we plunge into an era of climate change. A must-read for anyone interested in our food system, I am so pleased this book has brought him to the show today. Tom, welcome to Eating Matters. Great to be here. Okay, so I before we get started, I just have to say... I have to ask, have you ever had that experience where you're, you dream you're fighting with somebody about something and you wake up like mad at them already? They don't know. They don't know you're mad at them, but you have this like, you're like, I'm mad at you. I am I, having that same experience with you in this book, I think. <laughs> I thought I should let you know, <laughs> which is I'm basically shooting the messenger. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> So yeah, I'm sorry. I, I'm, at my, I'm a little mad at myself, I think. <laughs> I mean, it was, it's, this book is, it's, it's an, it's an incredible read. And, um, you know, what you outlined, it, this is not necessarily new information, right? For those of us who are, have studied food policy, but you put it all in one place with a staggering amount of like data and evidence and, you know, conversations with people on the ground that, I, I'm going to maybe have a hard time sleeping tonight. <laughs> Did you yeah, have that experience few, when you were writing that, writing the book? Yeah, I definitely had a few of those nights. And one of my favorite authors is this guy, Mike Davis. And um, he's an incredible writer in Southern California. And he wrote a book about bird flu about 15 years ago. Mm-hmm. And I heard him on an interview saying that um, – of all of his books, it's the most terrifying one, and he actually had to he had he actually had to purge it from his house because it was it scared him so much. Yeah, and, um, 
And sometimes I feel like purging this book from my house for the same reason. It's just, yeah, I mean, it's, it's not bringing the good news about the status quo for sure. <laughs> yes. Um, okay. So let's, let's dig in um, and just start by, you've been covering the food and politics, um, food, the food politics and ag beat for what, over a decade now. Um, why did you decide to write this book at this time? Yeah, I mean, I feel like, you know, like what you were saying about a lot of this stuff, a lot of the material in the book is is stuff we already know. And, you know, I feel like I kind of came by it, honestly, by, you know, sort of working in the trenches for all those years. I think I started writing about food politics in 2005. And um, and I think I, I just reached a point where... I think it was during the California drought and I was doing a lot of reporting on the drought. So this would have been 2015, 2016 in there. And just thinking about how, you know, when you dive into it, that area is, you know, California central Valley is overstripping its water resources with no end in sight. And that's pretty shocking for the food system. And right around that time, I guess this, I guess it was 2013 is, is when is when the real germ for the book happened. So I was doing all this drought reporting. And then the Midwest had this really brutally wet uh, spring, um, just incredibly, you know, there's just these incredible storms that put all the soil on the move. And I did a little bit of reporting on that. And I just had this realization, like, these are the two crucial nodes of our food system. And both of them are in a state of ecological unwinding, ecological degradation, with no end in sight. And in both cases, climate change is making it worse. And I thought, you know, putting those two things together and teasing them out would be a really powerful frame to look at this question. And so that's kind of how it came together. But, you know, I had done reporting, especially in the Midwest, but I've been been reporting on both of those areas, you know, for al- almost a decade by that time. Um, and so th- that's sort of how, how the germ of the book came together. And okay, so you you profile the Central Valley in California and the Corn Belt in the Midwest. Where, for those of us who are not like California natives, um, where is the Central Valley, and um, what kind of foods? Let's start there. What kind of foods come out of this region? Yeah, I mean, it it really is a remarkable area. So it it's like the spine that runs up the middle of California from not too far north of LA almost to the Oregon border. And so it's got, on one side, it's got the Sierra Nevada Mountains, which a lot of people, when they go to California, it's a popular destination to go to Yosemite Park. Um, Mm -hmm. It's right in the Sierra Nevadas. Uh, There are these grand, spectacular mountains that go all the way up. And then on the other side, you get get these coastal mountain ranges to go up California. And so the valley is right in the middle. And I think you know, travelers going through there might pass through there on the way from LA to San Francisco. And it is essentially the way that it, it really isn't a desert and and we can get into explanations for why that is, but the way that it's been rearranged since it became a U S state, since California became a U S state 
it's like this desert in the middle of California. Um, and I, I remember one time I was doing research for the book in Fresno, uh, which is a, a city right in the middle of the, you know, lower down the Central Valley in the southern part of Central Valley. And it was 110 degrees, just baking hot in the summer. And, um, and I remember um, just dry, you know, just needing to escape the city and driving into the Sierra Nevada mountains and, you know, 25 minutes from Fresno, it was suddenly 60 degrees and just beautiful rivers flowing everywhere. Um, um, And so that's the kind of place it is um, absolutely transformed by U.S. settlement, um, not so not very long after the U.S. took it over in the 1850s, um, you know, basically becomes completely rearranged. And the incredible water resource that comes from the snowmelt from the, the Sierra Nevadas that fed these incredible rivers have all basically been diverted into and dammed and turned into basically a big spigot for agriculture in the area. Um, and, you know, loads and loads of wetlands um, drained um, for agriculture and entire lakes have vanished, have been essentially, you know, because the water source for the lake uh, was cut off, the lakes ended up driving, drying up. There's a lake called Lake, Tula- lake Tulare in the southern Central Valley that was the biggest lake west of the Mississippi, and it no longer exists um, because of agriculture. Uh, and there are many examples like that in the Central Valley of just spe- just mind-boggling change that has, has happened since U.S. settlement. Is this, is this area um, different in terms of the, the experience of redirecting waterways to really become a huge, like, spigot for agriculture? Is this unique to the Central Valley area, or has this been happening all throughout the coast? Um, I There's nothing quite like it on the coast. I mean, I, I think we can also say there's there's not much quite like it in the world. And, and why I say that is that California, just in general, has this really unique Mediterranean climate. And um, I believe it's the largest Mediterranean climate in the world. And, and really all that means is that it's situated at a certain place in the continent and it, um, you know, has really, you know, long and um, typically hot summers. In, it's maybe like in the really coastal areas, not quite as hot, but uh, long, hot summers that are very dry and then mild winters. And, and so what that means is that, you, you know, great growing season, uh, really long growing season, just exactly the opposite of up in New York State or New England. Um, and, um, and, you know, the limiting factor in Mediterranean climates is water because, you know, it's, it tends to be dry in the summer. But this magnificent resource of the Sierra Nevada really makes it unique, this, you know, huge spine of mountains that um, essentially catches the weather generated in the South Pacific all winter. Um, it basically is basically all the water that evaporates in the South Pacific and goes into the atmosphere is funneled into these things called atmospheric rivers because, because they carry so much water mm-hmm. and sent to California. And they essentially hit the Sierra Nevada and drop as snow. So this is, so you get this incredible snowpack 
And I can't think of another area in the world that has quite that combination of this incredible snowpack alongside a Mediterranean climate. And so that, that's what makes California so unique. And then in terms of the change that has been wrought by U.S., um, you know, the, the U.S. state, um, it is considered one of the most transformed landscapes in the world. And so, you know, once again, there's not very much like that um, anywhere. Um, you know, and I think up, up the West Coast, and you know, up in the Pacific Northwest, the, the dams that you get there are more for um, electricity generation is a, is a lot more um, the, the purpose up there. There isn't quite the same uh, emphasis on, you know, creating dams and aqueducts to divert water to agriculture. So given the incredible kind of climate, how much food, you know, it comes out of California right now and what types of foods? And then, you know, I also want to ask you the same questions for specifically the Central Valley, which you focus quite a bit on in the book. Yeah. So, you know, basically California provides the majority of U.S. grown fruits and vegetables. Now, there is there are growing exports imports from places like Mexico and, and Chile. But in terms of U.S. grown fruits and vegetables, the majority come from California as a whole. And then you, you think about things like nuts, specifically almonds and pistachios and walnuts. Um, essentially, all of that comes from California. In fact, 80% of the globe's um, almonds come from California um, almost all of that in the Central Valley. So there are two other massive uh, valleys that aren't as big as, as the Central Valley, but that do produce a lot of food, and that's the Salinas Valley and the um, Imperial Valley. And they're more known for fruits and, you know, basically salad greens, I should say. That's for mm-hmm. really um, the, the sort of basis for salad greens. And, you know, if you look at the numbers, you know, stuff like, Salad greens, lettuce, um, arugula, things like that, you know, upwards of 80% come from California. The Central Valley has a good amount of that, but um, what it, um, and, you know, vegetables like broccoli and cauliflower um, are all widely grown in the Central Valley. But um, what it's really known for and what it really is a powerhouse in is fruit and then also almonds and pistachios. Um, just you know, incredible amount, probably uh, 80% of the almonds you've consumed in your life uh, are from the Central Valley. Uh, there are some Spanish imports and, and things like that, but um, but for the most part, almonds come from California. And, um, and I think in most of the country for most of the year, when you go to a supermarket and you browse the produce aisle, the fruits and vegetables come from California with some, some imports mixed in. Um, and so it is, you know, really just the sort of vegetable and fruit basket of the United States. Um, yeah, you have this one stat in the book. I think it is less than 1% of U.S. farmland. The Central Valley occupies less than 1% of U.S. farmland, but it turns yeah. out something like a, a quarter of the nation's food or something That's right. really scary like that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's, it, it is incredibly productive. 
So you you also profile a farmer um, at the at the early on in the book, Joe Del Bosque, whose experience provides a good example of the issues that you know it seems like many of the farmers in the region are contending with. Can you tell us a little bit about what some of these challenges that he and his farm are facing? Yeah, I really thought he was an evocative example because he's um, he's farming in the San Joaquin Valley, which is the southern part of the Central Valley. And he's got um, about half his acreage is devoted to almonds and the other half is devoted to melons. And his melons are really, really good. He does, he does organic melons and he does a variety that, you know, this is not the sort of flavorless melon you get at the, at the motel in the morning, you know, when you're, you know, wolfing down your breakfast. This is not like the the bullshit that you get in your fruit salad. (laughs) Yeah, at exactly. Like a drugstore. <laughs> yeah, when you go to the drugstore and they have a pre-cut fruit salad, this is not <laughs> that. It's really, really good. There's some kind of heirloom variety that um, are very delicate to harvest, and so they uh, resist mechanical harvest. And so he's got um, crews of farm workers, and he's a bit of a unique character because he is Mexican American, and his parents were migrant farm workers, and he. He's like that one in a million that was able to scrimp and save. And, you know, his father was an excellent grower who, um, you know, moved from the fields to being kind of a farm manager and just sort of knew how to run a farm operation. And Joe got into that, you know, as a, as a you know, fairly young. And so has incredible knowledge and skill, um, but, you know, is from that world. His parents were both born in Mexico. Um, and so he's got, he's got these melons that sell at Whole Foods. I think Whole Foods is the, the number one buyer of them. And they, in the right season, they make it out nationwide. Like I, you know, was getting them in Austin, Texas after I interviewed him. And I was hearing people talk, you know, they're available up in New York at the right time of year. You know, just a major supplier to Whole Foods um, d- during his season. And the other crop is almonds, and the almonds are not organic. They're just sort of sold into the commodity almond market. And um, in both cases, he's got a lot of problems, um, you know, because basically, you know, we should set up that this magnificent resource of the Sierra Nevada um, snowmelt um, has been declining rapidly on average in recent decades because of climate change. And part of it is just sort of the complicated California weather patterns where if you miss, if one or two of those uh, atmospheric river storms just don't happen in a given year, just for random reasons, you essentially can go into drought and not really have any significant snowpack to speak of. And so um, as the snowpack has, has dwindled, People of more and more in that area relied on groundwater. That is this other incredible resource, the underground lakes, essentially, in, in California um, that, you know, basically were filled up over, you know, centuries and centuries of this water flowing through the Central Valley. Some of it percolates downward. So you get this incredible um, store of groundwater. And so farmers have been reverting to the pump and pumping up that groundwater and essentially taking it to dangerously low levels. And so you got a failing snowpack 
and this dwindling aquifer. And that's sort of the California uh, conundrum in a nutshell. And so he's really at the very edge of that um, where he, um, you know, his melons actually are fairly water efficient, but they're super labor intensive. And as you know, basically California joins the 20, essentially joins the, the 20th century, joins, um, you know, like the, the rest of, well, the rest of the labor force won things like minimum wage and time and a half overtime in the, during the Great Depression. But farm workers were excluded from that uh, for reasons essentially of racism. And, um, and so California is slowly uh, bestowing those, um, those rights onto farm workers. And, um, and so, you know, basically Joe will, will tell you like, look, um, if I have to pay, you know, a minimum wage of like $14 an hour and in our, in our harvest season, we essentially rely on overtime because we have fields that need to be harvested immediately or we're going to lose the melons. And so there's a lot of overtime. I'm not going to be able to do it anymore. Um, and, you know, as much as I support, and I think those, those laws are incredibly important, it, it is this conundrum for the area. And we've already seen a lot of mechanization going on there. And then for his almonds, you know, the water problem looms large because in his area, there is no groundwater to speak of. Like he basically has to rely on water diverted from the Sierra Nevada snowmelt. And if it fails that year, then he's got to buy some on the open market at incredibly expensive prices. And so what he has to do is he's got to divert all of his water from his melons in dry years. And so a couple of years during the drought, he didn't have any melons at all because he had to divert all the water to, um, to almonds. And he sees that as not a sustainable situation going forward. So he's this incredibly successful farmer you know, basically the one in a million farm worker kid who grows up and becomes a landowner. And he is, you know, not sure how long his business is going to go on and if he can pass it over to his kids. He, you know, he's just right there at the cutting edge of all these problems. And he figures that essentially it will in the end become just a, an almond farm and, and later a, um, a pistachio farm because the reason why pistachios is that as they get lower and lower in the water table in the area, and he'll have to buy some of this groundwater, the, the water gets more and more full of these, uh, uh, basically salt. It becomes um, high salt water, and, um, and almonds can't grow with a certain amount of salinity, and um, pistachios are more tolerant. And so he figures because of the labor question He's going to end up with just um, selling, um, you know, having an almond farm that is a complete, um, completely stressful every year figuring out where his water is going to come from. Um, and so I, I just feel like he's a bit of a microcosm for some of the hard decisions that are going to be made in the Central Valley going forward. And I think we need to think real hard about relying on it so much for stocking our, our grocery store shelves going forward. Here's a question. How much water do we have left in California but before all of the like underground uh, aquifers, all the groundwater is totally depleted? 
That is a really good question that there should be an answer to. Um, there's a, a guy that I um, quote a few times in the book, this incredible scientist named um, Jay Famietti. He's a, um, a water resource, uh, a water researcher um, for a couple of different California university institutions. And what he says is that the technology exists to find out like they could, you know, the oil industry has a pretty good idea of what reserves are in places with lots of oil, like Saudi Arabia. Like you can do, you know, it's expensive science, but you can do the science and figure out the reserves. And then the oil companies make decisions on how much to invest in this well um, based on how much oil is there. But no one has done that research in California. No one has funded that research. What research that they have done is they can tell how much water gets withdrawn uh, every year. And the way they do that is NASA satellites go up and orbit around the Earth. And so much water is withdrawn that the, ga- the gravitational pull of the Earth changes. And, um, wow. and based on that, they can get a, um, a pretty good idea of withdrawals. And the withdrawal levels that they're seeing in California consistently are alarming. So they know I, I, I don't have the numbers in front of me, and um, but it's I, I can tell you that they're in the book and they're huge, and um, but what what Jay is fairly confident of is that they can't keep doing that forever. Like they can't keep doing that for very much longer, and we're already seeing signs of the overdraft. Um, like I said, the salt levels get really high. Um, the uh, in some cases, when you get to lower um, down in the basin, you get really high arsenic levels. This is a naturally occurring chemical that's toxic to people. Um, and, you know, in, a, in the aquifer, when it's, you know, in a fairly normal state, it's at a level too low to, to worry about. But it gets to points where it's 10 parts per billion, which, you know, is very dangerous. And you've got farm worker communities in California whose water, the, the, uh, the water level has dropped so low that they are consistently getting aquifer, um, getting arsenic in their well water and having to buy bottled water. And people are spending thousands of dollars a year. These are people with average incomes of $20,000 devoting significant portions of it to buying bottled water because the water that they're getting is poisonous. And these are all signs that the answer to your question is, not very much longer, like not definitely not forever. Yeah. So one of the great known villains, if you will, of food and environmental advocates and people um, is, of course, Monsanto, now Bayer. But in your book, you talk about one company that's probably lesser known for the destruction that they have caused on the natural resources um, in California for profit. And that's, of course, the wonderful company. Yes. Can you tell us what they produce and the impact that it has had on California agriculture, especially when we think of things like water rights usage and and the dwindling water supply? So there's this very canny, smart couple named Stuart and Linda Resnick, and they're Los Angeles residents. They don't come from a farming background, um, but they figured out pretty early, they're really masterful marketers. And they figured out pretty early that buying farmland in California with good water rights and when you can't get good water rights to figure out other ways to get hold of water 
would be really valuable going forward. And so that's what they've done. And so they've become the dominant, I think I'm pretty sure they're the biggest landowner in, in California, or at least in the central Valley, the biggest agricultural landowner, that is to say. And, um, they are also master, very, very excellent marketers. And we've all seen everyone who's listening to this will have seen their, their handiwork. Um, if you go into most supermarkets in the United States, you'll see a big pistachio sign. I think pistachio, wonderful, um, mm-hmm. you know, in the, in the produce section. And um, they, with their, you know, incredible marketing skills, have done a great job of increasing demand and um, sort of the appetite for stuff like almonds, pistachios. And they are the dominant players in those two markets and they're also the reason why um, the, the pomegranate has, be, has become a mainstream item in the United States. I remember hearing, I remember learning about pomegranates in the 80s. I was um, working in a restaurant in Austin as a teenager, and we had these Iran, Iranian, I had these Iranian co workers, and they produced one day at work a, um, a, a pomegranate. I was like, what, what in the world is that? And it was a very obscure, you can get it in certain, like maybe a Mexican American restaurant or like a, a Mexican store um, mm-hmm. that they're using Mexican culture, um, but they were not a mainstream thing. And now pomegranate juice is ubiquitous and there's a pomegranate season. You go to the store and you can get pomegranates. They're completely behind that. They brought pomegranate agriculture, at least they, they brought it as a, massive commercial enterprise to the United States. They famously uh, funded studies showing that pomegranates can cure everything from, I don't know. So good for you. (laughs) Erectile dysfunction and all this other stuff. Uh, A lot of that ended up being, you know, overhyped. I'm sure they're really good for you. Anything that red is going to be good for you. Um, You know, uh, some of the little feet, you know, these little oranges, these little citrus fruits, um, cuties and things like that. Yeah. They, you know, they, they, they've taken these commodities, well, they, they've taken these, these products, commodified them, put tons of marketing into them and really blown them up. Um, almonds were not very much consumed in a place like China. And they, they and the, the California Almond Board, but with the Resnicks very much, um, you know, in league have, um, have really promoted them hotly in China. So there's this booming market for, um, for almonds in China. And they're, they're actually, you know, a lot of cultures don't have the idea of the snack, um, the idea that, hey, between meals, I'm going to nibble on some, some stuff. And they're pushing hard to get snack culture established in places like, you know, various places in Asia, India, um, and so they're, they're master marketers and they, they got hold of a thing called the Kern Water Bank. And so the idea of the Kern Water Bank, so Kern is in the southern part of the Central Valley, mm-hmm. um, incredibly full of sort of industrial scale agriculture. There's a lot of um, resnick, wonderful uh, land in that area. And there was a thing called the Kern Water Bank that the idea of it was, and I, I should say that this this water that comes from the Sierra Nevada, it doesn't just go to farms. 80% of it goes to farms, but a, a lot of it also goes to places like Los Angeles and other 
um, metropolitan areas to, you know, f- for people, to, you know, to, for, for the water supply in various, in various cities. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, and, you know, that can be a ver- very political question because there can be, there are municipalities that don't have a lot of money and that need to, to secure water. So the Kern Water Bank was established to capture, it's literally a water bank, and it was established to capture water going through the Central Valley in good years. And then it could dole it out in um, in drought years to um, to cities in need of, of water. And the the Resnicks got the Kern Water Bank in a sweetheart deal. They actually bought this public bank. They had the controlling interest in it. And so when there's a drought, they are sitting on this supply of water that they can divert to their own farms if they feel like that's the most profitable use of it. They can sell it at really high prices if that's the most profitable use of it. And so they've become these water barons of California that who also, you know, dominate these markets that I've already mentioned. And they also um, are the, the, the sort of geniuses behind Fiji water, which is like, let's go to this, um, this island in the South Pacific and let's bottle up the groundwater from this island and sell it for... Um, you know, ridiculous price in the United States. And, you know, let's, instead of drinking filtered tap water, let's import water from, from Fiji. Um, and another just, you know, marketing home run by, by the Resnicks. And so, so that's basically who they are. And they're very well connected. They're, they, um, they give a lot of money to particularly Democratic politicians. So they have a lot of juice with um, Democratic politicians in Sacramento, the California capital, and also D.C. Um, I remember um, one of, Ob- uh, I remember a high official from the Obama administration's USDA actually went to go do, um, be the chief lobbyist for the Resnicks after her, um, her time was up with, uh, with the USDA. And she was just recently um, advising the, the Biden administration on some of, of its ag policy choices. This is a, just a very common um, occurrence with the Resnicks. They're just very, very, very canny. They're very tight with the California senators. Um, yeah. I don't know so much about Harris, but they're definitely tight with Feinstein and, and Barbara Boxer, Kamala Harris's, Kamala Harris's um, predecessor. Um, and so they're really good at securing water rights. And, you know, another big issue, just I'll say real briefly, is the San Francisco Bay Delta, which is this, um, the, the Delta that we've all seen when you go to San Francisco. And it um, essentially is this incredibly, it goes, uh, you know, more than 100 miles inland from San Francisco. And it's where these rivers used to, a bunch of the rivers used to um, have a confluence there um, before all this, all the dams. But it's still an area that is this incredibly rich ecosystem that needs a certain amount of water. And if you talk to the agricultural interests, they'll tell you that you're just letting water go off into the sea if you um, let it go through there. But it's this incredibly rich ecosystem that has all these different species of birds and fish that rely on it. And um, and so there's this constant push-pull between farm interests and the federal government that control the San Francisco Bay Delta over how much water should go into it. And the Resnicks have are very good at lobbying to get their way with how much water goes in, it, it, you know, how much water goes through, and how much is diverted to um, 
you know, things like the, the Kern Water Bank and ultimately to their to their farming enterprises. And so that's sort of who they are. That they're absolutely fascinating. Yeah. And um, and they, it seems like they also they're also trying very hard to keep people to keep farmers in the almond and pistachio business. You know, there's no there's no effort to diversify. <laughs> no, and they're from- always trying to get. You know, they they what they want is you know they want the the market for almonds and pistachios to keep growing. They need the, they they need continued growth for the price to to keep going up. Um, or at least to hold steady. Um, you know, we'll see in the second part of the book, we talk about the corn and soybean belt, uh, where corn and soybean prices are always hovering at the cost of production or below the cost of production, just a terrible business. And to avoid that with almonds, you need, you know, constantly growing demand. And that's sort of the point of all this marketing in China. But if you're going to meet that demand, then you've got to keep supply going too at a certain rate. And so they're always trying to get farmers to put in almonds and pistachios to just keep the whole system going. And so I've got a thing in the book that you're probably thinking about where they are recruiting farmers and talking about the amazing amounts of money that you will make, um, you know, if you make these big investments in putting, you know, you're talking million, millions of dollars worth of investments in putting in an almond grove. If you make those, you can actually make a lot of money in almonds. Um, and so, yeah, that's, that's their push. And they're very much about we've got to keep fighting and lobbying for our water rights. You know, those people in yeah. Sacramento and Washington are trying to steal our water and we got to, you know, hold their feet to the fire. And that's sort of their whole, um, you know, their whole strategy. Yeah. One of the things I found particularly disturbing was the emergence of farm ownership as an asset class. Mm. What are the long-term repercussions of this trend, and is it happening anywhere else in the country? It is happening. What I have found recently is that it's um, really an emerging thing in the Delta area, the sort of um, Mississippi River Delta area, Um that there's a, um, a lot of interest in buying up farmland there and doing sort of industrial scale agriculture. And um, I think the implication of it is that. First, without- I, I, I should have, I'm so sorry to interrupt you, but I should have actually asked you to explain what an asset class, what this means. Ah, yes, an asset class. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is an important distinction for investors. And so, um, I used to, you know, before I was writing about food politics, I used to be a financial journalist. And one thing I learned when I was doing that is that what Wall Street wants is that they want to tell investors a story. It's very narrative driven. So they want to have a story to tell investors. And um, and so when you when your story is good enough, it you can you can develop what's called an asset class and you can um, you can pitch it to investors as something that you want to have in your portfolio for diversification. And so stocks are an asset class and bonds are an asset class. And, um, and those are the two main ones. And, you, and, and so you're sort of you know, convincing your clients that you've got to have some stocks in there, you've got to have some bonds in there. And farmland ends up being this, so the story that they tell about farmland is that look, um, you know, first of all, they're not making any more land. I think Mark Twain said that, like, 
you know, land is this um, scarce commodity that, you know, you know, no one's going to make more land to put you out of business. Um, and then we've got a growing global population that's going to need to eat. Um, we've got people moving to um, higher resource diets, like things like meat and almonds. Um, and so to meet the demand for those things, um, that's going to make land that can produce those things more and more valuable. And when you buy farmland, you're, you're buying an asset that can appreciate. So it can, you know, it, it can go up in price. You can sell it for more than you bought it for 10 years from now. And it also throws off an income stream in the meantime. So that's really nice too. Um, sort of like a dividend paying stock. And so that's good. And then when you have an economic um, crisis, let's say you get a recession, people still have to eat. And so if you're in the media business um, and there's a recession and ads dry up, you see lots of bad stuff happen in media, lots of layoffs. You know, we've all seen it um, many times in the past 20 years. But people are in a recession, even if they've lost their job, they still have to eat. And so you're buffered from economic downturns because for that very reason. And um, and so they started pitching this um, as an asset in the 90s and it got official status as an as an asset class. And what that means is that there's now an index like the S&P 500 that you can go look at a chart and see how it's been doing. For the past 20 years. Um, and, um, and it is something that um, mostly for very wealthy people um, is considered something that you should have in your portfolio. But of course, there's also funds, like not just hedge funds, but um, investment funds that you can invest in that will put farmland in your portfolio. And to me, one of the things that's scary about it is it uh, completely commodifies farmland. And so the owners are completely separate from the area. They don't live there. Um, They um, have no connection to the operation. Uh, Some professional manager who's been hired manages the the property. And um, if you don't have to live there, then it becomes that much easier to turn the area into a sacrifice zone. And that's one of the things that I, um, that really hit me with this book is that in both the places that I sort of touched down in California and the Corn Belt, um, in the California ag regions, um, the living conditions are brutal. The air is foul. Um, uh, the, the water we've been talking about, the water quality issues are universal in that area and both those places, uh, polluted water. And, you know, if you're, you know, a, um, a, a shareholder in one of these, uh, farmland funds or you're, you know, a, a director of a big hedge fund that's, that's buying this stuff. Or you know, on the board of Harvard, uh, which is you know, I also document yeah. Harvard getting up to some of this stuff. You know, you're not you know, you're not in the middle of of that crisis. Your neighbor's not going to yell at you because their their well went dry or their water is polluted. And um, and you know, the other thing is that that land is then explicitly run to make a profit, um, yeah. and the time horizon of that profit is chosen by the director. There's no one, like if, if I own a piece of land or, you know, if most people own a piece of land, you think about passing it on in, in better shape than what you found it. 
But if you're an investor in one of those operations, you've got a, a, a horizon of like 20 years and all you care about is how much profit you can wring out of it over those 20 years. And, um, and so I think that is one of the big problems that's happening in California is that there is a good amount of this institutional ownership that's completely divorced from the reality on the ground. I'm, I was thinking about this in particular because it was recently announced that Bill Gates is now the largest private farmland owner in the U.S. And yes. I don't know if this is you know somehow related to this trend. I'm assuming it is, and hopefully he's a better actor. But just the idea that that you know, <laughs> just the very idea that you're owning farmland yeah. strictly for financial gain is just terrifying. I think. Yeah, and I don't have any you know knowledge of what what he's up to by by doing that. But I'm sure it's this similar logic that growing population, a scarce commodity, this is probably Uh something good to own. And I believe some of what he does own is in the Delta region, which I think is really interesting. Probably not for this conversation why it's so interesting, but I I do think it's a really interesting thing that uh, investors are settling on that area. Yeah, I think I'm going to have to have you on because I, I have been paying particular attention to. I think that like land use, land rights are going to be the next big big thing that we need to be focusing on down the road, and this just seems to be further evidence that that is you know going to be something that we're going to be talking about a lot more in addition to water rights. So, and I, you know, I want to say for this episode that I'm focusing I, our conversation a lot around what's happening in, um, in California, but your book lays out in the, in the same way, kind of makes the case for like everything that's happening in the corn belt as well. We are just, um, there's like equal time dedicated to it in the book. I'm just particularly interested right now in what I learned about California and the flip side um, of drought is of course flooding. Um, yes. So we're still staying in, in California, but yes. and I, this is not something that like, I think that people tend to associate with a problem in California, but what you describe is the very real possibility that um, there could be a catastrophic flood in the you know, next couple decades. Yes. And that was a big eye opener for me as well. Um, and it really kind of goes back to this interesting weather pattern in California, because what happens is the so weather in that, and for the Western North American coast is generated in the South Pacific, like, like I was saying before. And there's this um, this pressure ridge that comes into the area. Um, and I'm not, you know, like I can't get, I can't break down the science of what that is exactly, but it, it's a weather concept that this ridge of high pressure will come in to California in the months, uh, in, in, the, in, the, in the summer months, basically, um, let's say March, March, April to October, November, you get this high pressure ridge. And so this weather coming from the South Pacific gets shunted northward to you know, Washington, Oregon, um, British Columbia, and those regions are known for their wet weather. And that's basically why, or, you know, south into Southern Mexico um, and and California doesn't get it for those months. In the wintertime, this high pressure ridge tends to go away. And that's when California gets all of its weather. And most of its precipitation happens in the winter and these um, these giant storms come in the winter, and like I said, 
Um, one or two of these storms not happening can be the difference between um, a mega flood and a drought. Um, the, the California drought of the first half of the last decade, like 2011, 2016, was basically based on uh, a lot on a high pressure ridge um, staying there in the winter. And so the winter weather never came to California. So the snowpack never formed. And that's what the drought was. Um, but so what climate change is doing is it's getting hotter and hotter in the South Pacific. The atmospheric temperature is really high. The water temperature temperature is really high. And so you're getting these, um, you're getting more water going up there than ever before. And you're getting storms that are really, really heavy. Um, and so that's sort of the climate aspect of it. But I should back up for a second and say that people who have studied the sort of paleo history of California, the, the, the paleo climatological history of California, looking at things like sediments and streams and th things like that, have found that the past couple of hundred years when the U.S. was a major presence in the North American continent have been fairly calm in California in terms of both droughts and floods. But if you go back before that, um, if you go back the past thousand years, there have been five mega floods in California, five or six enormous floods in California that have essentially put the entire Central Valley underwater. And the last one was in 1861, 1862, at the very dawn of California statehood, there was this flood that most people in California now, even people that are history buffs of the state who grew up there, who have roots in California, a lot of people don't even know about this. But this um, basically in the December of 1861, it started to rain. One of these atmospheric river storms started and it didn't stop for about 40 days and 40 nights straight out of the Bible. And so this massive rainstorm comes on top of snow that's already been packed into the Sierra Nevada um, mountains, melts the snow. And you can so you get this water gushing in from the mountains, the, the rain itself falling. And um, the entire Central Valley was under 10 to 20 feet of water. Um, and, you know, basically it was a big catastrophe. Um, we don't know how many people died, but a lot of people did die. It didn't affect San Francisco that much. Um, San Francisco, uh, you know, basically ha is right above this delta that where the water just gushes out to the sea. But it, um, it really hammered um, the Central Valley. And, you know, basically people forgot about it. It was this disaster that happened and Californians shook it off and, you know, basically resettled. And, you know, one of the things that if you think about the Central Valley in 1861, 1862, there were Native Americans living there and contemporary accounts show that they very quickly early on realized what was coming and cleared out. Um, um, lots and lots of accounts of, of Native Americans clearing out. Um, there weren't that many white settlers there. Um, and the farming there was tended to be basically cattle agriculture, um, hundreds of thousands of, I think about a hundred thousand cattle uh, drowned in the event. 
But the loss of life was, you know, it existed, but it was fairly limited. And if you flash forward to today and think about what the Central Valley is like today, it would be much, much more of a disaster than it was in 1861, 62. But so what this what this what, what this paleo record shows is that these kinds of storms recur about every um, hundred hundred to two hundred years, you know, something like that. And we haven't had one for about one hundred and fifty years. And that's already scary enough to me that th- this is a thing that happens and that like. We've just been lucky that it hasn't happened since California's become this, you know, massive economy and population center. But then when you add climate change onto it, um, the hotter climate means more evaporation, more water in these atmospheric rivers. And there is a team of scientists at UCLA that have sort of modeled the, the paleoclimate and put it on top of climate models that are happening now. Um, this, uh, this guy named Daniel Swain at UCLA, you can Google him. And, um, what he figures is that more likely than not a storm of this magnitude is, is going to hit, uh, and the entire central Valley is going to, you know, quite likely be inundated and put underwater. And that has grave implications for the food system. You know, as you said before, about 25% of the food that, you know, that we consume comes from there. Um, and also just the environmental and human costs are staggering. Um, so now many millions of people live in the Central Valley. Cities like um, Stockton and Fresno and Bakersfield are fast-growing cities. They're drawing people from L.A. and San Francisco who get priced out of those markets, you know, the Bay Area generally. So these are very fast-growing areas. Um, cattle agriculture Um, has, you know, exists still um, massive, massive amounts of dairies. California is now the biggest uh, dairy producing state in the United States. Um, um, Produces more than Wisconsin. And most of those dairies are concentrated in the Southern Central Valley. And um, dairy cows are huge. And I, you know, did some numbers in the book about how much bigger they are uh, now than they used to be. And just logistics of, trying to move hundreds of thousands of these giant dairy cows out of a flood um, is staggering. And, um, and then you think about like what, what happens to them when they drown and just sort of the bio waste implications. And then you yeah. think also about the chemical intensive nature of the agriculture, the fertilizers, the pesticides, um, all that stuff being concentrated in the area um, what happens to it when it, um, when it comes underwater, um, it's also, I, I think, kind of little known outside of California what a big oil producer it is. And mm-hmm. most of the oil production happens in the southern Central Valley. And so now you've got petrochemicals uh, involved in this sort of toxic stew. And um, it's just um, it's a staggering thing that will probably happen in our lifetimes. And um it is one of those things that that does keep one up at night for sure. Yeah, that and that we're not prepared for. It seems no, like. and, and it's it's. I question, you know, how can you prepare for something like that? Right. Yeah. 
well, I mean, you can, yeah, I don't know. I, I guess, and I think that just ha- hearing you kind of detail out, you, you think like a flood, ooh, de- devastating, right? But but like when you really think through exactly what that entails in terms of all of the, like the pollution, like you said, um, the loss of life, the like trillion dollar, you know, trillion dollars worth of damage to infrastructure and just yes. everything. I just, it's, it is, it's hard to wrap your head around. Um, and it's yet not talked about at all. Even, you know, I think we're really consumed with like wildfires in California. Yes. Which are as we scary, should be. As we should be. Right. Okay. We are going to take a really quick commercial break, but we will be right back. So stay tuned. This episode is brought to you by PASA Sustainable Agriculture, cultivating environmentally sound, economically viable, and community-focused farms and food systems. PASA Sustainable Agriculture's annual conference is one of the largest gatherings of sustainable farmers, food system professionals, and changemakers in the nation. The 2021 virtual conference takes place January 19th to February 5th and features more than 90 sessions on topics that include soil health, climate change, crop production, livestock grazing, urban agriculture, community building, food justice, and much, much more. Don't miss keynote speaker Robin Wall Kimmerer, scientist and author of Braiding Sweetgrass, Indigenous Wisdom, Scientific Knowledge, and the Teachings of Plants. Learn more about PASA Sustainable Agriculture's 2021 virtual conference and register online at pasafarming.org slash conference. And we're back where today I'm speaking with journalist Tom Philpot about his new book, Perilous Bounty, The Looming Collapse of American Farming and How We Can Prevent It. Um, okay, so I want to go east to the Corn Belt and just briefly, I know it's really hard to summarize just all of the all yeah. of the problems happening with the way that we farm in the Midwest today. But what are some of the negative externalities of how and what we are producing in this region? In the Corn Belt, mm-hmm. yeah. And yeah. where is and where is this? Just Iowa, or is it the surrounding area? It's as kind well? of centered. Think of Iowa as the center of it, and then it goes a couple of states east out to Ohio, and a couple of states west out to let's say the Dakotas. But the, the, but Ohio is, I'm sorry, Iowa is really the, sort of the the buckle of the Corn Belt, let's say. And, um, and so just, just to make a long story short, it's it, this other incredible region. It's as unique, you know, I was talking about California and its Mediterranean climate. Well, the Corn Belt has got this incredible, it's a, it's a prairie region that had this, this glaciation that happened, you know, some number, many, many years ago that um, having the glaciation brought all this silt down from, from the north um, and then having it'd be prairies with these incredible um, herds of, you know, this incredible population of bison and other animals just created this incredible store of topsoil. Um, obviously people lived there too and play, played a major role in essentially managing those animals. And so when, when the U S takes it over in the 1850s around that time and starts settling it, it's just, just this incredible stash 
of topsoil. Some of the richest, I mean, th- there are three or four regions in the world that have topsoil of this quality over an expanse this big. Um, Argentine Pampas, Ukraine, um, very few others. And, um, and so, you know, basically, and, you know, another thing that I think people um, don't always get is that there were also huge amounts of wetlands. And these wetlands were incredibly biodiverse, um, supporting plant life that sequestered all kinds of carbon. Of course, there was all kinds of carbon sequestered in the, in, in the prairie soil, um, in the drier parts. Um, but the wetlands, incredible sequestration of carbon, incredible amounts of biodiversity, fauna, birds. It was the engine of, of avian diversity, biodiversity in this continent. All of it has been paved over. Essentially, all of it has been plowed up. And, you know, fast forward to today, uh, the great majority of it devoted to two crops, corn and soybeans, that are planted at the same time and harvested at the same time, leaving the ground essentially bare all winter um, until the, you know, the, the next summer when the canopy of the plant comes up and um, buffers the ground a little bit. And in those bare months, um, we get these storms that occur and of course climate change is making these storms uh, worse. And it is um, essentially sending this precious topsoil that we've already surrendered half of since, uh, since U S settlement um, stunning amounts of topsoil are going on a move, being washed off of these farms along with all of their agrochemicals and being sent into streams um, and rivers that um, causing all kinds of downstream uh, problems, you know, externalities you asked about would include foul drinking water throughout the region, um, just really disgusting messes made in lakes where phosphorus, uh, which is a fertilizer that's applied, feeds algae blooms that make the water toxic uh, in those areas. Um, also, there's a huge concentration of uh, pork production. And these giant CAFOs and their waste gets mixed into the stream. Um, and then, you know, clear down to the Gulf of Mexico, uh, probably every listener of the show knows about the, de- the, the dead zone that occurs every year fed by nitrogen fertilizer that blots out this enormous, uh, you know, Connecticut-sized amount of the um, Gulf of Mexico, sending, you know, fish in, in those areas scurrying elsewhere and messing up things for, for fisher people down there. Um, so it's just this ca- cascading set of problems come, that come from devoting all of your land to just two crops. Um, and then, you know, I just talk in the book about, I mean, I think another big externality is just the dis, you know, just really horrible diet that is generated from this because, you know, corn and soybeans, they go to, you know, feeding the sort of feedlot, um, you know, confined animals, um, you know, chickens and pigs and cows, um, including those, you know, giant factory dairy farms in California. Uh, they actually will import um, corn from the corn and soybeans in the Midwest. Um, but they also course through the food system in the form of cheap uh, soy oil, corn oil, high fructose corn syrup, other corn sweeteners, um, you know, just a whole variety of thickeners, you know, essentially – you know, we all know from reading Michael Pollan that, you know, most of the processed food in the middle of the supermarket is um, essentially tweaks corn and soybeans, whether it's fat or sweeteners from those things. 
And we also know that the diet produced by that, by this um, heavy in meat, you know, feedlot meat and heavy in processed food is literally causing a massive public health crisis. And I would say that that is, you know, things like diabetes, um, type 2 diabetes, heart diseases, um, various kidney diseases are diet related based on the diet that's generated from this. And so one of the things I asked in the book is, you know, who is benefiting from this? It's literally my next question. Yes. And, and, you know, I think that the answer to it is, you know, it ends up being the the main beneficiaries. And, you know, let's go back to the gold rush. Um, Everyone, um, you know, the the gold rush in California is sort of what made it, um, you know, a, a, an attractive state. It's really what was the sort of impetus for statehood in California. And everyone knows in a gold rush that, uh, you, everyone ends up going bust except for the people smart enough to sell supplies to the gold diggers. And mm-hmm. there's a very similar situation happening in the Corn Belt where the main beneficiaries of the system that's causing all these problems and generating this terrible diet are the companies that um, deliver the, um, the inputs, the seeds, the pesticides, um, and also fertilizers the very fertilizers and pesticides that end up fouling up water. Um, these companies profit from this situation. And then the buyers of the corn and soybeans, the companies that, you know, essentially turn it into cheap meat, uh, the companies that turn it into these cheap ingredients that become our food, um, the companies that turn it into ethanol to drive our, you know, um, gasoline based transportation system, these are the companies that make out like bandits. Um, and one thing I show in the book is that farmers, um, you know, I, I think the one correction or the one thing that I'll, um, I'm already thinking about if there is a second edition is that I portray farmers as generally losing out from this, this system because mm-hmm. they produce so much corn and soybeans. Everyone's doing the same thing. The price falls below the cost of production, and they they skate by. Um, the, you know, government subsidies make up the difference, but you got to be really big to be turning out a profit because the the margins are so tight. And some some of them are big enough to, to turn out a pretty handsome profit, especially when you add the government subsidies to the game. But there is a way that I didn't get in the book that farmers do benefit, and that is that the price. You know, going back to land as an asset value or it's an asset class, the price of land does has appreciated dramatically in that area. And so if you're a farmer, you may not be bringing home much in terms of um, profits from growing corn and soybeans because you have so much competition and the price is so low. And maybe you're skating by on a government check, but the land under your feet, the asset that you own um, is dramatically appreciating and you might be a millionaire and we could say, you know, you know, cash poor and land rich, but land rich is better than land poor. And so they do benefit, um, especially the bigger ones who hold out and get, you know, giant um, plantations of land. And, uh, and so there are fortunes being made in the Midwest by farmers just by holding on to their land. And, um, and if you look at a chart, the, the price of, land in the area does drop when commodity farm, uh, prices drop, but it never drops quite as much. And you see the steady trend upwards. Maybe there's times when it goes down a little bit, 
But you know, if you bu- if you bought Midwestern farmland in 1990, you're in really good shape today. Um, and so that is one way that farmers are cut into the system, and one of the reasons why they're willing to keep on with it because they are, you know, they are benefiting in terms of land value, pre- land appreciation. But the biggest benefactors are the people who own shares in companies like Bayer, which now owns Monsanto. Syngenta, um, another big giant chemical firm, these, you know, enormous meat companies that have been so much in the headlines for the way that they've been destroying their workers' lives during the COVID-19 crisis. Um, Mm -hmm. These are the very companies that benefit from this policy, this phenomenon of devoting this gorgeous, incredible swath of farmland in the middle of our country to just two crops, corn and soybeans, because they get cheaper corn and soybeans. That means that lower costs, bigger profits. And I don't know if this would make it any that much better, but you also point out that a lot of the the companies like, you know, there's with consolidation, there's like what, three, depending on what, you know, where in the supply chain you're talking. But, you know, these major like agribusinesses, they're not even American. (laughs) Like they're not American owned. Increasingly not. Um, yeah. I mean, and even, you know, even when they were American, like let's take a company like Smithfield, which is a giant pork producer now and by a, a Chinese company or Syngenta. Well, Syngenta was already a European company, but I think Monsanto is a great example. Mm-hmm. Um, a U.S. company now and by this German um, chemical and pharmaceutical behemoth bear. Um, one thing that we should also note is that Capital is global. Their shareholders are global. And now it's really this sort of like this global elite uh, shareholder class that um, that really ends up being the, the, the main beneficiary. Like, I don't think the U.S. lost out dramatically when this, you know, this Chinese entity bought Smithfield necessarily. I mean, it is this ph- phenomenon of the... Um, the ownership, uh, you know, the dominant owner of the company now being halfway across the world and even less exposed to yeah. the, the harms being caused. But but yeah, I mean, I, I think it's a fine point that, you know, increasingly these are global companies that are headquartered elsewhere. Yeah. Okay. So, but they're doing God's work. They're feeding the world, right? Right. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I, I do put the light of that in the in the, in the book because um, if you look at um, so we get this rhetoric. You're exactly right. We get it in California. You know, we're feeding the world um, when we're you know, California is moving increasingly over to almonds, which are you know, I love almonds. They're a luxury food. Like you don't need almonds, right. um, and they're yeah. creating this. You know, this idea of snacking, like who, no one needs to, I mean, snacking is great. I love snacking, but you know, it's not. We, eat too much. we just, Americans eat too much, period. Yeah. It's a, yeah. And it's basically, you know, sort of importing our overeating as well. Um, and so it's, it's all, um, that, all that bit is nonsense. Um, and you're not feeding the world when you grow a bunch of almonds. And in the case of the Midwest, you know, that, that rhetoric is really strong in the Midwest. And uh, if you look at the, the main recipients of U.S. corn and soybeans, it's all mid, you know, middle income countries like China on up that are the, the biggest beneficiaries. Because what they're doing with it is creating, you know, massive amounts of meat 
that um, that are it's out of the out of reach for low income, you know, in a place like China or anywhere in the global south. The great majority of the meat that's being produced is too expensive, even though it's um, it's cheap um, on a grand scale, cheaper than meat's ever been produced. It's still too expensive for actual poor people. And so they're not it isn't like U.S. Um, corn and soybean production or U.S. meat production is feeding the world. It's feeding middle class consumers and, and on up who couldn't afford other al- less destructive alternatives. So, okay, let's transition to solutions, yeah. um, which let's say are it's going to be it's going to be an uphill battle. You mean you talk about how California generates forty nine billion dollars worth of food per year? I'm imagining, I, you know, I can imagine their vested interest in keeping it there. Yes. <laughs> um, what are, I mean, is this, is the only answer government regulation? You talk, you talk throughout about the, the impacts of that deregulation has had, the horrible uh, defect, effects of that. So, um, yeah, is this, is this the only answer? Yeah. I mean, I think I, I, I think in the end it is because so much of this, system that I've laid out from the infrastructure to create that, um, those, those irrigation systems in California, like the, the private sector did not, did not build those. Those were m- multiple 10, multiples of $10 billion investments by the state of California and the U S government to create this infrastructure, to make that $49 billion behemoth that is creating so much profit for people at the top. And in the corn belt, you know, you would not have a system where essentially 100 million acres, you know, or re- actually more than that, this huge, huge swaths of land is devoted to two crops without government policy and without the sort of, um, you know, antitrust deregulation that allowed these companies to get bigger and bigger where three companies or four companies dominate markets. And so I think there has to be a public policy response to change things because the the incentive structure is geared towards the status quo unfortunately um and you know basically like my my main solution for the california problem is just to de-emphasize california as the place that stocks our supermarkets mm-hmm. not to say let's eliminate agriculture in california it's a great place to grow food it should grow food but we can grow a lot more food elsewhere. And I think that the, you know, I have a big section on this at the end of the book, the local food movement. And I think would be very um, familiar to all the uh, heritage radio listeners in general has done an amazing job of scaling up food production at this point, basically everywhere in the country. Um, and New York city is a fantastic example of that. The green markets, that have you know grown dramatically over the past thirty years are an example of local and regional food chains growing up, um, building out, um, uh, increasing capacity, and supplying more food for for those for those populations in those areas. And it, you know it's happened in Texas, and um, it's happened. I mean, just anywhere you look at in, in, on the U.S. map, you've seen this dramatic expansion of local and regional food production. The problem is that it started from a very tiny base because we basically eliminated that. And despite all this growth, 
it's still not big enough to make a big dent. And I think the answer is going to have to be that all of these regions get to get, you know, like within the region, get together and look at what are our food production assets? What, you know, what kind of climate do we have? What kind of, you know, season extension kind of infrastructure do we need in a place like the, the U.S. Northeast? You know, things like uh, hoop houses and high tunnels. Um, look at assets and needs and figure out ways to build capacity and help farmers make it um, easier for farmers to get by and make a profit and uh, support themselves and start supplying a significantly more significantly more uh, amount of food in those areas. And, um, and I do think it is going to take government action because we've done it in this sort of laissez-faire fashion over the past 30 years and made incredible gains but it just isn't enough. Like I, you know, I, I came into this um, topic in the early 2000s and the publication of uh, Michael Pollan's Omnivore Dilemma. Uh, I actually reviewed it for Grist, the publication I was working for when it came out. Um, and, you know, writing the book was an occasion for me to, you know, think back, what have we achieved in these, you know, uh, 15 years since that book came out and the achievements have been extraordinary, but the system continues. California agriculture has gotten more thirsty for water. The Midwest um, is growing more corn and soybeans. So more land of corn and soybeans. Like we haven't moved the needle yet. And I think to actually do that, um, we need government action. Otherwise, we just have these, you know, essentially two food systems, one for, you know, people in the know who can afford this other kind of food. And then just this gross industrial food system that is destroying ecologies, these really, really important ecologies, um, even as it destroys people's health. And we'll just continue with that. Um, and so that's sort of the case I make in the book. Um, and you, I mean, you talk about how vo- voting with your fork and eating local, it, it's not enough, but we, but we still need to do these things, right? This is yes, like- necessary, but insufficient. Right. So I'm not going to eat almond butter anymore. I should eat peanut butter. <laughs> oh, well, milk, that's no, another thing. I, I think that, I mean, I think there's the, you know, that, that does make good sense, but it isn't that um, we shouldn't eat almonds. I mean, I think almonds are this incredible food. One thing that we should recognize about almonds is that they have a very narrow, um, uh, what is the word, environmental niche that they can thrive in they can only be grown in mediterranean climates mm-hmm. um and so instead of almonds being this ubiquitous thing that you eat every day and eat all the time treat it as precious like you know yeah. maybe um every five times you go to the store and you are buying your nut butter buy peanut like buy buy almonds once every five times like buy almond butter once every five times and buy peanuts which have a much bigger ecological niche that they can um, be grown in um, and so are cheaper and are also really, you know, good and high quality and have lots of good benefits, you know, do stuff like that, sort of lower your almond. Um, and, and I say this as an almond lover, um, right, lower right. your expectations for ubiquitous almonds. Um, but then it like gets, that. it gets harder when you talk about vegetables, you know, and I mean, I'm live right now, I'm in, I'm in Detroit, which by the way, I want to have a I think there's so much 
land here that could be farmed in oh, yeah. even in the Detroit city. But yes. um, you know, it's hard. So is the idea that we like really eat locally, eat seasonally, and then when we still want to be able to have um, tomatoes in the winter, then we need to rely on California. Yeah, I mean, I think we, shouldn't eat, well, we should, shouldn't eat tomatoes in, in the winter. I don't, I mean, luckily for me, I, I, I don't like winter tomatoes. Yeah, so it's not, they're all so terrible. It's a very, yeah, it's not a big sacrifice, but, um, yeah. but they're, you know, I mean, I think, I, I think what you're saying is, is, is basically right. But I guess the, the one step further that I would take it is, yeah, I mean, support D- Detroit and Michigan grown food in, in the growing season, but then also get involved with, um, sustainable ag organizations, food justice organizations that will, you know, get involved in policy work and do some of the stuff that I'm, that I'm talking about, like building out capacity um, and thinking of yourself, not just as, you know, we are consumers. Our role as consumers are really important. We have to think about our consumption, but we're also players in this larger society and we can have influence in the larger society and think about more that hat. Like, how can I get involved in the incredible community garden movement in, um, in, in Detroit? How can I get involved in organizations that, um, that support uh, small and mid-sized farmers in the area that are growing for the local area? Uh, programs that support young people getting onto land. You know, we talked about just how, you know, cascadingly high, crushingly high land costs are. It's really, really hard for new and beginning farmers. So getting involved with groups that help um, such farmers get access to land. Those are the things I'm thinking about. Yeah, in terms of consumption, everything you said is exactly right. Um, Use your food dollars as best you can because, you know, we we need to build those markets. Are you hopeful about what we could possibly do with the Biden Harris administration? Or and and also especially with Vilsack being back at the helm of the USDA, or probably will be back at the helm of yeah. the USDA. I mean, here you know at this at this point early on in the administration, we're still in January. I, I am sort of hopeful that there hopeful that there has been a paradigm shift. I think that a lot of the politics. I think there's a a, a realization, generally speaking, that the politics. Politics as usual, um, restoring the status quo, the, the, the pre-Trump status quo, bringing yeah. us back to, you know, January 20th, 2016 uh, is not going to cut it. And mm-hmm. I do think that there is a realization that that's true in economic policy. Um, I was very disappointed by the Vilsack pick because it seemed to signal that with agricultural policy, that that was the goal to, mm-hmm. was to go back. But I, I think that the, the, we're playing with a new deck of cards. The cards have been shuffled. There's new power centers in Washington. People like uh, Liz Warren and Bernie Sanders um, have a lot of power and a lot of stature. Um, Cory Booker, senator out of New Jersey, has become a real player in progressive agricultural policy and has got some really interesting bills going forward that would not have been imaginable, I think, a, a few years ago. And he's got allies and people like uh, Sanders and Warren. Um, and I think there are some interesting people in the House of Representatives. 
And so I think that there is a real chance to um, hold the Biden-Harris administration's feet to the fire. And I should also say that, um, that Kamala Harris, when she was a senator, was involved in some of those in some of that legislation. Um, these these bills that are you know aren't going to pass anytime soon, but are developing a constituency and infrastructure, an argument in D.C. She was involved in some of those bills, and where she was most impressive is something we haven't talked very much about, and that is worker justice in the food system. Um, yes. She was involved in a bill that would bring the um, sort of uh, federal minimum wage and time and half protections to farm workers, um, basically taking the California, what California is doing and making it nationwide, which would be fantastic and get a lot of pushback in the South, um, for example. Um, And so I think there is a lot of reason to, to hope. And I think that there is a potential for social movements around, you know, I think there's been a really impressive social movement around climate change that, you know, on day one of the Warren, um, the Biden Warren administration, I'm sorry, the, the Biden Harris administration on day one, they revoked the Keystone Pipeline um, grants, um, this giant, you know, really destructive pipeline that was going to go through uh, parts of the Midwest from Canada. And that is directly a result of the climate movement and people saying, you know, we don't want new, we don't need or want new fossil fuel infrastructure to be built. We want green energy infrastructure to be built. And I think the fact that he did it on day one is a a real, you know, signal that the climate movement had, you know, that he hears the climate movement. And I I guess my big hope is that uh, the climate movement will embrace um, food and food justice and food and food justice. People will embrace the climate movement because it really is one thing. And I think that when I think about that, I do get really hopeful that there is an administration that will listen and, you know, sort of the centrist um, politics of Biden's past, I think he realizes aren't, don't have a purchase anymore and he's got to find a new way of being. And so that does give me hope. Yeah. Okay. Well, I think that's a great place to leave it. Um, Thank you so much for coming on the show. Your book is amazing. Where oh, where can people uh, find find your book? And um, yeah, <laughs> they it. can they can find it in all of the you know usual channels. But the one that I really like is called Bookshop.org, which is a um, conglomeration of independent bookstores, and you can order it online and have it shipped to you. And most of the profits go to independent bookstores. And you can also, you know, in socially distanced fashion, go to your local bookstore. And it's a little bit hit, hit and miss. Um, I've heard it, heard it showing up um, in lots of places. I've heard some places where it isn't. But um, those would be my favorite. I mean, of course, it, you can get it on Amazon and Powell's and um, other I places as well. Of, I had never heard of bookshop.org. That's great. I'm it's really, really excited. Cool. Yeah. yeah. Um, okay, great. All right. Well, uh, this has been so much fun. I know we've gone way over, but promise me um, you can come back to talk about all of the other things we didn't get a chance to talk about. Uh, I'd be happy show. to come back anytime. Okay, perfect. All right. Thank you Wonderful so much. You. Thank you so much. 
Okay, um, we're going to leave it there for today. I want to give a really big thanks to our sponsors. Our show intern is Amber Chung. Our show engineer is Jeet Paul. And show music is by Tim Archer. All episodes of Eating Matters are available on the HRN website or as a podcast wherever they're found. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe and leave me a comment. Let me know what you think. I'm Jenna Liute, and thank you for listening. Eating Matters is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to learn more about our 10-year anniversary celebration happening all year long, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritageradionetwork. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right-hand side of our homepage. Thanks for listening.